Welcome to the Atypical Rainbow. Uh, I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. Uh, and this is another episode in the series of Spectrum Analysis, uh, entitled Expectations and Perfectionism. So, this topic arose because of our recent experiences with homeschooling, uh, which sort of brought to light the difficulties that people with autism, children and adults alike, can struggle with expectations. So, a little bit of background for those who don't know. One of the key criteria for diagnosing autism is a symptom called rigidity. It looks a lot like obsessiveness. A lot of people call it OCD. Basically, it's the world needing to be a certain way. Uh, and sometimes it can present in minor ways. So in kids, it typically presents as lining up toys. But in adults, it can present in uh, more complex ways. And particularly, actually even in kids, it presents this way as well. It presents as high expectations or the expectation of perfectionism. What that means is that when someone with autism approaches a situation, if it doesn't go as expected or if it doesn't go exactly the way they wish it to go, it can lead to a number of different emotions. It can be anxiety. It can be avoidance. Avoidance, it can be sadness, it can be a, a, you know, anything, any sort of negative reaction, but ultimately it comes back to the idea of things being in control and having things that are familiar and that are certain. This feeling may be familiar to anyone with anxiety. A lot of anxiety comes from a place of helplessness and lack of control. So you got to think about people with autism as living with this every day, that an inherent part of the way that our brains are structured is that we want things to be perfect. Not everything necessarily, but there are key things that seem to matter more than others. So Grant being the you know, homeschooling teacher substitute during this shutdown, uh, was w- bed witness to this quite a bit, particularly with Jake. Yes, I think um, because Jake's autism presents in what we used to call Asperger's syndrome, he has been quite capable at uh, schooling for the first couple of years of primary school where everything is very concrete, you know, knowing letters, knowing sounds, knowing numbers. However, he's now getting to a point where the requirements are a bit more abstract, especially when it comes to imaginational. I think a lot of people know the sort of stereotype of the autistic child not being able to do imaginative play in the same way as other kids. And that was, in our experience, more Jake than Matt. Matt was capable of doing imaginative play better than Jake. So it's probably not surprising that as we went into more of the creative um, imagination, English work, he started struggling more than the more structured, as he said, you know, non-fiction. So he he can tell me that he's better at non-fiction than fiction. Um, And even the word imagination can create anxiety for him, I think. So the tasks he's been doing at the moment are sort of writing journal entries. So a bit like Diary of the Wimpy Kid, for those who are familiar with it. Basically, you know, it has its own structure. You know, diary entries start with Dear Diary. You write them chronologically. You write them in past tense. All these sort of important concrete things and success criteria. But it can get lost quite easily for a autistic child or a child who struggles with imagination by the tasks being too creative and possibly too interesting. Mm. Like 
write a diary entry from the point of view of an animal or write the diary entry from the point of view of a child from the 1700s or even write a diary entry from a day in your life. Because with an autistic child, sometimes they will sit there and they will think about every single possible thing they can write. So if you say, write about a point in, like a day in your life, it's very hard for them to narrow that down. Mm. So yeah, he cred- it created a lot of anxiety and stress with him. And I think one of the problems was because it was hard for him, but not hard for other people. And he was more used to the other way around where schoolwork was not that hard for him, but other people struggled. I think it kind of was the area where he expected to be good, whereas I think he's much more understanding with social and emotional things that they are harder for him. So, yes, he struggled from the perfectionism, the expectations created by his own success in the past, I guess. One of the other things that uh, we talk about a lot when looking after anyone with autism is the idea of setting structures and rules because people with autism thrive a lot better in a scenario where there are rules and there are clear guidelines as to how to act. And so part of the problem with schooling particularly is that when you encourage a child, as positive as it may be, sometimes what happens is that it sets expectations for uh, within themselves. So they start thinking to themselves, all right, well, if I'm good at maths, why aren't I good at English? Or on a narrower case in this situation, so I would go, I'm good at nonfiction. Why am I no good at um, at fiction or creative writing or um, these sort of more empathetic, imaginative kind of exercises? And so it becomes uh, overwhelming. Again, everyone responds to it slightly differently, but it is a challenge to try and find the balance in that, particularly being the parent of this child, you want them to know that there are nuances, that, you know, just because you're good at one thing doesn't automatically mean you're good at another, but to try to explain that to any eight-year-old, irrespective of whether they have autism, it's quite a, a deep concept for them to grasp. One of the, uh, one of our listeners, Beanie Goes Nuts on Instagram, thank you, presented a question about expectations, and more from an external point of view, and the question was about whether or not, by making a um, sort of particularly teachers, but anyone aware of um, of a child's autism, whether or not it actually means that the expectations of the child are lowered, and therefore they don't try as much. I mean, what's what's been your experience with the teachers at Jake's school? Um, I think the teachers. It's been more about how they have to adapt, like. It's been interesting watching a number of different kids with autism and who have different ways of coping beyond just Matt and Jake. But I think that the teachers have the knowledge they need to adapt and understand that these kids do need different things that other kids don't. So, for instance, we're going back to school in two days um, I've to- I've talked to Jake's teacher about the fact that it's going to be quite stressful for him. So Jake's teacher is actually going to come and meet us at the gate because I'm not allowed to go on the grounds, uh, which for a normal grade three, their parent not being able to come onto the school grounds is not a big deal. But for Jake, it is a big deal. Um, and even before the shutdown, when I was just not allowed in the buildings, it was a big deal because of his expectations. So we had to make sure his expectations of going back to school were actually going to be partially, as much as we can, met by what was actually going to happen. But I think the teacher, knowing that it's 
autism rather than, I don't know, just something else. Bad parenting, I guess, is the other option. <laughs> um, that means that they do make these accommodations that are very specific. So I've always felt like explaining to the teachers is very important. That, I mean, there is something almost magical about the word autism for a lot of people in a carer position, because I think for some reason what it does is it makes them feel like they understand the situation better once you sort of throw that in, because then it's almost like they stop attributing the behaviour to the child, or they stop making it a voluntary behaviour, but they sort of look at it and go, oh, well, this is something the child is suffering from. Now... Of course, depending on who you talk to, there are different positions, whether you suffer from autism, have autism, or whether it's just a personality difference. Ultimately, though, I guess, going back to the idea of diagnostic criteria, one of the key diagnostic criteria is that it has to cause dysfunction. And that's the point. It's that it's one thing to have this feature where you have high expectations of yourself because having high expectations or standards of yourself can be channeled into something really productive you know you can many great people have particularly in the science field i think are suspected to have had autism but when when it's applied to a situation which is where it becomes non-productive having that diagnosis there just gives people a little bit of understanding it's it's a it's a label that makes them feel comfortable so that they know what's going to happen so i certainly haven't experienced any any lowering of expectations that then led to lack of effort i think what ended up a lot of what's happened with with our kids was that people try that little bit harder because in uh, the australian school system there or at least at, at our school actually i have no idea if this extends beyond us is um is this thing called individual learning plans are they yeah, it's pretty normal yeah. for autistic kids to have individual learning plans. So the idea... Actually, you know what? You're bit, you being the former teacher, it's probably better if you explain what an individual learning plan is than me. So an individual learning plan will generally be a plan put together by the teacher, um, which they then talk to the parents about. And it's basically a... It sets goals for where the parents and the teacher want the child to be at the end of a term or semester. Because sometimes just assessing them based on the criteria across the education field doesn't show that they're getting results, I guess, is probably the best way of putting it. So for a kid who is having problems, it can also be often be good to say, okay, so this kid, the hope is that by this time they will achieve, you know, being able to say these sounds or identify these sounds. Because if they're constantly saying, okay, we're going to judge this kid by what a prep should be able to do in the middle of prep, then they're just sometimes just going to constantly be told, you're not up to standard, you're not up to standard, you're not up to standard. So having goals that you're all working towards to help the child individually means that you can go, okay, so they're they're not going to be at this standard, but they've achieved this. We're like, we've got them to this point. And sometimes the goals can be things that you wouldn't put into, you know, the curriculum, like expressing emotion to your teacher, which I think was one of Jacob's ones. Mm. So so talking to your teacher when you're sad is not part of the curriculum. (laughs) But it can be part of an individual learning plan because that's what he needed to learn how to do. Uh, So that 
Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so I think by that token, what it comes down to is even though expectations may be reset when a person learns about a child's autism, I think it really depends on what you do with it. It's less about... I think I think some people fear the the term autism. So sort of, mm. in the re- the reverse reaction is the idea that if you label someone with autism, it then means that you give up. That there's just there's no recovering from that, which is completely untrue. But that I think that's the fear where a lot of when when I when I was practicing in, in general practice and talking to parents about the possibility, some of them were worried about that. They were worried about the label. They talk about labels like it's this terrible thing. But all but it, it's not about whether or not you have the label. It's about what you do with the label and what other people do with the label. What I find a little bit short-sighted is that what often happens with people who have autism is that when they become an adult, the label goes away. And so it's almost like there's this assumption that once you mature, you know, up to a certain age, it just disappears. But the reality is you just get faced with new situations and different situations. Then the expectations on you and as part of that, your expectations on yourself get higher and higher. I mean, this is why in people with autism, the rate of anxiety and depression is significant because obviously there are multiple reasons why that may occur. Um, but one significant contributing factor is that they enter a world that they struggle to adjust to. And they think that the world, it's not, they think it's an entirely, it's entirely on them to adjust to the world. But actually it's a little bit of both ways. That if the world was a little bit more accommodating, if you could own that label and ask your employer or your friends or your partner to sort of understand that, then, um, then it's, uh, sorry, that was my phone. I don't know how to edit that out. So you're just going to hear some random hellos in the background. Whoops. Um, we promise it's not the kids. We're not neglecting them. That's just a phone. (laughs) Yeah. I, I enjoy novel ringtones. Sorry about that. Um, oh my God, who is messaging me so much through all of this? So I actually have to say, I think the main interesting thing with labels I've come across is other parents. So because especially Matt can pass quite well when things are going well, like he, he's the kid who 99% of the time you don't notice. And then the one, the other 1% you're like, what has happened to this child? If you don't know that he has autism. So sometimes I tell people, oh, you know, they have autism. And I've had a number of different parents say, Oh, I wouldn't tell people if I was you because you don't need to tell people. People wouldn't notice. Um, and it's a really, like, some, sometimes there's been kid uh, people with neurotypical kids, which I think is just sort of um, ignorance. Mm. And I just, I just don't get why they would say that. I guess maybe they're just afraid of labels and they haven't had to come to terms with that. But one time it was a parent with a child who had autism and was struggling a lot more. I kind of got from her point of view because I think her understanding of autism filtered through her son was that it's really in your face. So I think she, for her, it might've been more wishful thinking that she could basically have her child pass because he never does if that makes sense. Yeah. So I had a little more sympathy for her. I don't know. Maybe I should have been sympathetic for both, but I'm not sure. Well, no, see, part of it is, though, that you, you got to think about 
the label of autism from that from the parents of neurotypical kids from the idea of normal because part of the problem there it's not about the child it's about how other people will treat the child so they're like mm. oh don't give other kids reasons to bully them and you're like well no you teach the other kid not to bully you don't teach my, my kid to hide part of who they are you know the whole point is normalizing it and of course there are a number of I don't even know what you call it, cultural variations, I guess it was, that we we want to normalise the kids. Again, having gay parents. We don't want to make a big deal about it. We we I think... <laughs> I remember... Um, was it earlier this year or late last year? There were some uh, gay parents who were looking to come to join our school. Earlier, uh, earlier this year. Yeah. And so uh, Grant was approached to sort of talk to these parents and tell them about how the school is from an honest perspective and how uh, LGBTQ friendly it was. But then we learned that apparently there is another gay couple in the uh, gay parents, gay parents in the school that we'd never heard of but we've always been very open about it maybe because you know we share parental responsibilities and i'm there a lot so maybe it was just it was made quite obvious but we've never gone out of our way to tell the kids don't say it because it might risk you getting bullied so i, I kind of feel it's sort of like that it's it's to some degree it's it's kind of caring in that they don't want the child to suffer but at the same time it's not the child's fault that they're suffering it's the fault of the bullies mm. and that's i think that's part of what bothers me about it because this is it's the whole generational thing of oh just just hide whatever might embarrass you because then coming back to the idea of expectation and perfectionism it becomes a matter of teaching the child the secret rules of socialising, the secret rules of living in whatever culture you happen to live in. And these kind of secret rules are complex, often contradictory, and often make absolutely no sense. Um, So trying to teach a child who has very black and white thinking about all the weird nuances of how you interact with people is A, complicated, and B, anxiety-inducing. And so we've taken the approach, for the most part, uh, of... Not brutal honesty, but almost you know as as honest approach as we can possibly take anything and yeah. sort of ownership of that because a it's simpler and b it sets an example at least in my opinion. Yeah, I think it does set an example of being honest, which is good. To go back to the idea of um, anxiety and autism and growing the growing out of it myth, I think um, one of the things like having grown up with autistic traits, is that you don't need a label to realise something's going on. Like, I remember... So, I remember my late primary school years. I used to feel like an alien. Like, you know you're different from the other kids. And if you don't have any knowledge about why, it can be really quite disturbing to sort of go, okay, so... I I can't do these social things or I don't fit in with these other kids and I really don't know why. Like, I don't know why I'm odd or I don't know why I react in these ways. So I think the fact that we've given the boys an understanding and a label means that hopefully they won't get to the point where they feel so much that something's wrong with them. Mm. And the thing is, like, I think... In my era, it wasn't because anyone forgot to label me. <laughs> I think things, things have changed a lot in the understanding of autism um, and 
I don't I don't know if I would even have been labelled if I had I don't know if I would have been assessed as being autistic. But I think I had no understanding that it was okay that I thought differently and I behaved a bit differently. And the kids around me were just reacted to this odd kid who was acting oddly. Um, and because the teachers didn't have any understanding, they couldn't say, okay, well, you can't treat Gran like that. It's not his fault. He, you know, has autism or has Asperger's or whatever. So I don't think anyone had the tools to do anything really, which is unfortunate because it made my life very difficult. So I think also, even as an adult, um, I think we had a conversation with some other friends over lunch one day about just that feeling of, oh, I just don't enjoy parties the way other people do, or I don't enjoy nightclubs. That's one of the things, like, that I really could not stand to go to nightclubs. Mm. And every time I went, it was basically like torture. Mm. And it was really hard to explain to anyone they just thought, you know, you're being a grump or you're not, no fun. When you're actually experiencing the world in a different way. Mm. I think that's, like, even for us, it can be difficult um, to understand that the kids actually do literally experience things differently. Like, one of the main things that um, I think has been a problem for us is the fact that Jake has such a sensitive sense of taste that he can taste spices in things that we can't. Mm. Like, we we can test food for him and think it's fine, but he can taste things in that food. Like, he can immediately taste a spice in the food that I'd have to eat, like, a giant bowl to build up the amount of spice to the point where I would taste it. Mm. And I think that's one of the things we had to do. We just go, okay... Yeah, he he is honestly responding to this food that it's, you know, taste is wrong or its texture is wrong. And because he's experiencing it differently to us, we can't fully comprehend it, but we can respect it. Mm. And I think that's what, especially autistic adults, kind of need. And autistic kids, but I think they get a bit more of it. That people just have to go, okay... I don't experience the world the way you do, but I respect that the way you're experiencing the world is causing you distress. Mm. And that's okay. It sucks that this is happening to you, but we'll get through this. Mm. And I think that's that's the approach that I try to do, you know, with remote learning things that he... Well, actually, both of them, like, just... They sometimes just experience the world differently to me. And all I can basically do is go, okay, I trust that you are distressed. I respect that this is how you feel. And I'm just going to acknowledge the reality for you is that you are upset about this thing. Mm. I think that's what being a parent of, of children with autism has taught me in general, is the idea that... The idea of acceptance, that everyone is different and they're going to experience the world in different ways. Uh, I, I am quite a self-professed, judgmental and negative person. It's, it's just how I've always been. So, But, you know, even a few years ago, 
uh, I would often go, oh, why is that person doing that? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why would that, that's stupid. What, 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 that, why would they bother? Or that I don't even get how they got there. But one of the things that parenting has taught me is that it doesn't matter that people can get to however, whatever conclusion they want, as long as their life is, their choices are making them happy. And if it doesn't negatively impact me, it's actually none of my business. And it doesn't really matter whether I can understand it. It just matters that they are doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. And yes, okay, that doesn't apply to every situation, but it's certainly given me a lot more peace in myself because my inherent controlling nature was that everyone need to think the same way and it it really created this sort of ball of fury deep down in my gut when other people didn't make sense and you know once I got because I, I I I've been I got diagnosed as an adult I didn't grow up knowing I had autism but once I found out everything just suddenly made sense all my personality quirks and all the things I had trouble with like I've I've had anxiety for as long as I can remember And I never really understood why. And I think a lot of it was because I was in situations that I didn't understand or I felt pressured to do things I was not comfortable with. I remember in uni, I often got described as being an old man because I didn't like going out. I didn't like, um, you know, all the things that young people do. I enjoyed being by myself at home. And, you know, once I sort of put it in, in the frame of autism, I'm like, oh, is that why? And also I came to accept myself better and be able to say, well, that is me. You know, I, that's not something I should be apologizing for, for not meeting the requirements of being a 20 year old or a 30 year old or whatever society and decides I should be at this certain age. You know, for me, the other thing where that, the other time where that becomes evident is in my hobbies. So I am an avid Pokemon fan um, and, and a gaming fan and, quite often in pop culture and in a lot of people, that's looked down upon. It's like, well, no, you're a 30-year-old person. What? That's that's an immature behavior. You should grow out of it. And gaming for me particularly brings me comfort because it's about control. It's, that, it's a scenario I can enter where I feel better about it, where I can decide what happens. And if I fail or if I get it wrong, I can restart it. And you can't do that in life, you know? So... There, I think, again, when it comes to expectations, sometimes it would be nice to be able to just say, you know what, guys, I have autism. This is the thing that makes me feel good. Leave me alone, essentially. Yeah, I think um, stimming is another one. Do you want to explain stimming from a medical point of view? So, from one of the other features of autism is a, uh, s- a sort of variation in how someone experiences the world in the, f- in the five senses. So that would be smell, touch, sight, sound and taste, right? And so what happens is that for people with autism, they will go one way or the other. They'll either have hyposensory reactions, that's reduced response, um, or hypersensory reactions. And so what stimming often does is it stimulates, thus the term stimming, stimulates a hypersensitive reaction but in a really positive way. So if you think about something that makes you feel really good, whether it's the smell of bread or the feel of freshly washed sheets, and you magnify that anywhere between five to 50 times, right? Um, that feeling is what someone with autism gets from stimming. It makes them feel better. It gives them this sense of joy. And But on the outside, it looks odd to other people, again, because they might think and go, well, I wouldn't do that 
that? Why would you do that? And it, the kinds of stimming can vary. So it might be uh, chewing a straw or it might be um, rubbing your fingers together. So these little ticks and behaviors, which if you over-medicalize it, you decide, oh, well, that's something that needs to be fixed. But when again, once you put it with, look at it through the lens of autism, it's a thing that they do to make themselves feel better. And once again, it's not about you. It's not about you or your expectations of them. It's just something that they're doing for themselves. Yeah. So I think that when I was younger, I would probably describe some of my behaviors as stimming. Like particularly, I used to pace around a lot and I used to not quite blow raspberries, but there was sort of like this lip, sort of loose lip thing that I used to do when I played the clarinet. But I do it like all the time, even when I stopped playing the clarinet. <laughs> I think it drove people around me crazy. And one of the other things is like, if I'm listening to music in headphones, I often hum as well. And people think that's a bit weird. So there's these sort of behaviors. I got a lot of negative feedback about these sort of weird behaviors and then, like, the so the kids do weird behaviours. Like, one of the behaviours they do is sort of just roll, flop around constantly, or they'll kick the bottom of my bed over and over and over again. Um, and I get why people are so annoyed by my stimming. But as their parent, I'm like, okay, I know what they're doing. I know they're doing this because they're trying to calm themselves. I just have to ignore it. Mm. So that's, I think that's another way where actually knowing what's going on, which I guess is a nicer way of saying, <laughs> saying labeling mm-hmm. <laughs> is I think really important. So I don't know, does that, that's a very, very long winded way of answering the question about whether I think labeling is good. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, again, we, we, it's about, as we, the whole point of this conversation is that, yeah, setting expectations is useful in both directions. So mm. having allowing the people around you to know what to expect of you is important, but also you as the person with autism being able to know what to expect of them, to have more security in the reaction and the understanding is really important. And because th- ultimately the world is grey, it is not black and white, but unfortunately the instinctive reaction or the initial approach of people with autism tends to be in most situations a black and white approach. It's either an all or nothing thing. And it takes a long time to learn and grow from that. And that experience can be kind of traumatic. So if you can provide people uh, with autism with a, a certain degree of support and understanding, they will get to that understanding eventually. But mm. you just need to give them the opportunity to do that. One of the things that I started sort of thinking, and uh, the, one of the ways I've started thinking about autism is that it's, it's about being extra human because there are certain features of autism that we all do to some degree, you know? Mm-hmm. So some of us will um, be very, make sure that the pegs match when we hang up clothes or um, again, you know, the, the sensory thing about the feel of clothes or the, the smell of certain foods. We all have it to some degree, but people with autism to, you know, in one aspect or another will experience that to a greater degree and unfortunately sometimes become dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And so if if those who are neurotypical can at least accept it, you don't have to like it. You don't have to become it yourself to empathize. But if you can just sort of decide, all right, that's part of you. Great. Does it affect me? No. Then then it just makes 
everyone's lives easier. And frankly, I think you can appro- you can apply that approach to a great number of things or personality traits or whatever to in, in lots of situations. And if we all did that, we might be better off just a, be a, a kinder and more considerate society. Yeah. I think on a, pra- on a practical note, if anyone's thinking, I don't know if I want to tell the school, you know, that my child has been diagnosed with autism, I'd say that I like I went to the school when the kids were still in kindergarten and said, you know, I've enrolled the kids, they have autism. And I was given the opportunity to do to bring the kids in for an extra day to meet their teacher. I was given the opportunity to take photos of all their rooms they would go to during their their week, like like the art room and the PE room and stuff, so that I could show them pictures of that. So if you give schools a chance, they will help you. So I would very much encourage anyone who's on the fence to just go like go to the primary school or even the high school that you're going to send your kid to and just have a conversation. You don't have to take the kid. You don't have to explain it to the kid. But if you go to the school and you meet with one of the assistant principals or something and just say, my kid is going to come here. They have autism. Like, is it okay for me to bring the kid in? to like show them around when there's less people here rather than the first day of prep when it's all a bit crazy and everyone's crying, then they will help you if they're a good school. If they don't help you, then maybe look for another school. (laughs) 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 No, I'm sure there's some schools that are very busy and will try to help you. And at the moment with coronavirus, they might not be able to help you in the same way they're able to help me. Mm. But I do encourage people to at least give schools a chance to show you what how they can accommodate your child. Mm. Uh, and uh, like looking at it more from the adult perspective, for me, I think the key the key message from me would be that for let's starting with um, adults with autism, it, part of having the label is learning to accept yourself. And again, this is a broad thing. We should all be just be accepting ourselves because there are certain things that we do that are part of our personality. And as long as it makes us happy, but it doesn't harm anyone else, just let it happen, right? Um, I was thinking of, there was this patient of mine who had autism and who was a young gay man. And he was having anxiety about how to be in a club and how to pick up guys, right? And so he, it, it, it sort of highlighted two things. One, it's the understanding of the process, uh, which then sort of highlights the social difficult social difficulties. But two, it's about that rigidity. It's about that, what are the rules and what do you have to do? So he overwhelmed himself with the feeling of, oh, I need to look a certain way and be a certain way and act a certain way. And I asked him, well, what are you trying to achieve? Like, what is the goal? It's like to, you know, have a boyfriend. I'm like, okay, do you think there's only one way to get a boyfriend? And he's like, well, yes. And I went, well, that's not true. So we, we sort of talked through the various options that were available to him and that broadened his view about things. And so, so from, from an, an individual point of view, accept your limitations to some degree. It's not to say that you shouldn't push beyond them if they're making your life harder or more miserable, but, you know, if there are certain things that you just don't enjoy doing, like if you just don't like a club, don't bloody go. Like, don't let other people pressure you into it because really you're not going to get anything out of it. You might desensitize slightly, but you'll, you probably won't truly enjoy it. But 
looking at it from a broader perspective of people who are who know someone with autism or are friends or family members of someone with autism again it comes down to what you are what it is reasonable for you to expect of them and sort of dismissive comments like you know oh but other people would do this is not helpful right comparing someone with autism to an a, a neurotypical person is unhelpful yes if there are certain goals they want to achieve for themselves that someone who is neurotypical might be able to achieve. Don't put it in that context. Don't put it in... Don't use the word normal. Normal is a really... is not a great word. Let, you know, support them through their process and accept that sometimes things are going to be harder for them or they're going to take more time or you might need to adapt and figure out a different way to teach them. And so that kind of understanding is really valuable and you can still get there. You can still get to whatever it is you're trying to achieve or you might just need to accept it. So the stimming thing, if it's something that they do that particularly annoys you, then okay, don't tell them, hey, stop that. It's annoying me. You either accept it or you find ways to deal with it. But, you know, ultimately it comes down to... It's it's about being willing to accept, okay? So... We're going to end it there because we're, we're being, we're being uh, called for attention. Uh, but thanks for listening. If you have any more to add to this conversation, please find us on Facebook at The Atypical Rainbow. We're also on Instagram. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments and questions and follow-ups. And if, if, like Beanie Goes Nuts, you do have any questions about what we've talked about, we can certainly dedicate an entire episode to it. So thanks very much, and we'll talk to you soon.